0: Hello and welcome to The World Ahead on Economist Radio. I'm Tom Standage, Deputy Editor at The Economist. In this future-gazing podcast series, we consider speculative scenarios and provocative prophecies. The idea is that thinking about possible futures can give us a different perspective on the present and help us better prepare for what might come next. Today, we'll be asking forward-looking questions inspired by The World in 2019, The Economist's annual publication that considers the year ahead. And in particular, we'll be asking why, after years of trying to make their products as addictive as possible, are social media companies now heading in the opposite direction? We explore the rise of slow social. Maybe Facebook takes a small hit
1: from people spending less time clicking on stuff. On the other hand, the reputational damage that these companies can suffer is so tremendous that it's actually a pretty good idea in terms of the bottom line.
0: And what can the former headmaster of Eton College, Britain's poshest school, bring to China's educational system? Tony Little, the man in question, explains all.
2: This school has a really strong Chinese identity, but it also has a global impact programme, which all the students take, which enables them to have a much better sense of the world into which they are moving.
0: But first, a roundup of the key dates to watch out for in the rest of this year and what they tell us about the direction of global trends. Joining me in the studio to look forward is Daniel Franklin, The Economist's Executive and Diplomatic Editor, who's also the editor of the World in 2019 Annual, and Robert Guest, our Foreign Editor. Hello and welcome to you both. Hello, Tom. Hi. Robert, I'll start with you, if I may. One of the things we know is coming up in the next
3: few months is a whole load of elections. Which are the ones to watch out for? There's the Biggest election anywhere ever coming up in India.
0: It's always the biggest election ever in India, isn't it? It certainly
3: is, yes. Until China starts holding elections, it's going to hold that title. And perhaps even by the time China gets there, it'll still have that title. Indonesia's holding elections in April. South Africa has got one in May. So there's a lot of action on the Democratic front. Okay, let's go back to India then. What can we expect in that election? Well, until quite recently, people were thinking that it was going to be a a fairly easy victory for the incumbent Narendra Modi, the prime minister. But we've seen a revival of the opposition Congress Party, who have run India for most of the time since independence. And it's got to the stage where people are speculating about how big a bump the prime minister is going to get from Indian patriots because of the uh, fighting between Indian and uh, Pakistani plains over Pakistani territory. I mean, it's a very dangerous thing to be doing at election time, but it seems to be helping the prime minister. What about Indonesia? What should we be looking out for there? Indonesia is the biggest Muslim majority democracy in the world. And it's a place where the president, Jokowi, has done reasonably well. He spent a lot of money on infrastructure. Growth is sort of sputtering along at a reasonable pace. We've seen in the past identity politics has been used to try to bring him down. He has been accused of being a closet Christian, which is, of course, impossible to refute because it refers to what's going on inside his head and I expect that those kind of tactics will be tried again but he's brought in a very solid, some would say quite extreme Muslim as his running mate so he's he's definitely trying to head off those kind of challenges before the poll and the polls do show him well ahead of his rival Prabowo Subianto who's thought to be someone who would be significantly less good at tackling corruption.
0: Okay and uh, that brings us to South Africa which has got a big corruption problem. What should we watch out for in the election there?
3: What we're looking for there is the size of the majority that Cyril Ramaphosa, the president, wins. Uh, if it's a large majority, that's probably very good news for South Africa and the ruling party, I think, because it will entrench the sensible non-corrupt part of the ANC in power. If he stumbles and doesn't win a big majority, the knives will be out for him within the ruling party. And the possibility of the other faction, of the former president, Jacob Zuma, taking over again and using government as a means to enrich themselves can't be ruled out.
4: Tom, can I just jump in and mention one other rather large set of elections, the European Parliament elections in May, which if you take them collectively, are actually the second biggest exercise in democracy, although turnout is likely, frankly, to be pretty appalling and low. But they are an opportunity for Europeans to say yaboo to the status quo and to vote for some populists or uh, parties, protest parties of one stripe or another. So I think the temperature will be taken in Europe on that. And of course, they're already influential in the timing of Brexit. Of course they are. So
0: Robert, what does this tell us? In the in the past few years, the past decade or so, we've heard a lot about this idea of a democratic recession. That democracy's on the ropes. People aren't as keen on it as they used to be. Collectively, what do all these
3: elections tell us about how democracy itself is doing? Democracy did pretty badly in the decade or so after the financial crisis when a lot of people lost confidence in it. It's possible that that slide is over. It's possible that we're going to see it bouncing back again. It's certainly looking pretty robust in India and Indonesia, South Africa is a very good example of a place where it's come back. There was enormous hollowing out of institutions, of you know the checks and balances on executive power under the previous president Jacob Zuma, and the new guy in charge Cyril Ramaphosa has done an awful lot to reverse that, to put honest people in charge of institutions, so that the law is upheld, upheld, and people can't use power as a means of enriching themselves and nobbling their enemies. But it's, it's a very difficult and slow process, and I suspect that we will see quite a lot of people voting for populists uh, in the European elections. We do know that authoritarian populists of the left and the right are in power in, gosh, a dozen countries or in a share of power in, in a dozen countries in, in the European Union. And that's, that's much higher than it's been for a very long time. So it's a long struggle. Daniel, now let's turn to China, obviously not one of the countries holding an
0: election, but it does have several anniversaries coming up. Which one should we be looking out for and what will they tell us about the situation within China?
4: Well, it's a curiosity that years ending in the number nine, which of course this is, are tricky for China and that's because there are these anniversaries One that is coming up in May is the May 4th movement, the centenary of it. That was a student protest movement, which is part of the founding story of the Chinese Communist Party in today's China. But it's an awkward one because it was a protest against authority. So you can't just shut up about it. You have to acknowledge it. But an authoritarian regime has trouble dealing with a movement that was a protest against authority. And it's used in all sorts of ways. In fact, it was used – in 1989 by the students who were involved in the Tiananmen Square protests. And that's another awkward anniversary. The brutal suppression of that in June is another tricky one, uh, 30 years since then. And then there's 70 years since the founding of the modern China, which you can't uh, ignore either, but it's a controversial question as well. So I think you'll see the censors working over time for the rest of the year in China.
0: Daniel, another thing we've got happening this year is some anniversaries. Now, my favourite one is it's the 500th anniversary of the death of Leonardo da Vinci, one of my great heroes, which I thought was going to be quite an uncontroversial anniversary um, and just sort of much celebration of his genius. Uh, but it turns out it has become a bit controversial because the Italians are getting a bit grumpy about lending some Leonardo's to Paris for a, an exhibition. And they're saying that they really ought to be able to borrow the Mona Lisa in return. So there's a bit of sort of saber rack
4: over the Mona Lisa going on, Tom, you wrote you wrote a piece in the world in 2019 imagining Leonardo coming back to this year and and seeing it through through his eyes. What would he make of? this year. I think he would be very struck by the fact that he wouldn't be able to recognize a lot of the materials
0: in the modern world. And I think he'd be struck by the mysterious fluids that seem to, because he wrote a lot about fluids and, and hydraulics and saw a lot of things in that way, uh, the mysterious fluids that seem to power the modern world. So electricity on the one hand, hydrocarbon fuels on the other, and then data, which is this mysterious fluid that sort of flows through the air to these funny black rectangles that everyone seems to walk around with. So, And then, you know, what would he make of skyscrapers, which appear to just be made of glass and steel and they don't seem to be able to hold themselves up. And I think that would have been uh, quite mind bending for somebody from his period. But you also have a hero who um, celebrates an anniversary
4: this year, I believe. Well, Alexander von Humboldt, 250th anniversary of his birth. And he's a uh, one of the world's great polymaths also, and, and sometimes seen as the world's first ecologist. There's a, a foundation that takes his name in Berlin. It's Germany's biggest cultural project, which in September, on the anniversary, will be having its grand opening. And this is going to, first of all, change the center of Berlin. It's restoring the former royal palace, and it will also contain exhibitions which are going to be pretty controversial, pretty challenging, in particular, probing into Germany's imperial past in Africa. Germany's been actually rather good in confronting its Nazi past, but it's had less of a steely-eyed look at what happened under its imperial adventures in Africa. And I think that is going to deliberately provoke a debate in the country. And Robert, what about you? Do you have a hero with an anniversary coming up?
3: Well, it's the 150th anniversary of the birth of Mohandas Gandhi, or Mahatma Gandhi, as he's often known. And I think if he were here today, he would be Both pleased, of course, that uh, India is still independent and one of the most important nations in the world, but probably a little disappointed at the degree to which Hinduism is being used as a political cudgel. Remember, he was, of course, assassinated by a Hindu nationalist. So seeing the people in charge of India at the moment looking the other way when uh, Hindu mobs go around injuring, possibly even killing people for, quote, disrespecting cows, I think he'd be very disappointed by that. He'd also, I think, look askance at the uh, the sheer humorlessness of the Hindu nationalist in charge of India at the moment. Gandhi, of course, famously did have a sense of humor. Remember that time when a journalist asked him when he was visiting the West what he thought of Western civilization? And he said, I think it would be a good idea. Excellent. Well, we started in India and we've ended up
0: back in India. So, Robert and Daniel, thank you both very much. Well, thank you, Tom. Thanks, Tom. Next, the slow food movement was founded in Italy in the 1980s as a reaction against the spread of fast food. Then in the 2000s came slow TV, a reaction against hyperactive music videos and reality shows. It offered viewers slow-moving, relaxing programmes, often several hours long, in which not much happened or things happened very slowly. So is it now time, as we approach the 2020s, for Slow Social, a reaction against the constant buzzing and pinging of smartphones? To discuss this, I'm joined by Leo Morani, The Economist's news editor, who wrote about this for the World in 2019 annual. So, Leo, what exactly is Slow Social? It's a term we came up with. I don't think it's actually a
1: thing. And we contemplated calling it slocial, but fortunately we decided against. In short, what it means is just slowing down the speed with which information can travel. So that doesn't mean taking five minutes to send a message on WhatsApp or Messenger or whatever, rather when you send me something, instead of being able to send it to five groups, each of which have 100 people in it, what WhatsApp said, or instead of being able to send it to 20 groups, what WhatsApp said is the maximum number of forwards you can do at any one time is five. What that means is it's a very, very small step. And it doesn't stop me from doing anything. But what it means is if I want to send it to 10 or 20 people, I have to run through those steps again. And that's the speed bump, it makes me think, can I be bothered to do this? And as a result, it's Slightly harder for misinformation to spread, and anecdotal evidence shows that it's working, and WhatsApp says it's working too. What are some other examples of slow social? So the others are not quite as obvious, but Instagram, for instance, now when you scroll down, at some point it says, that's it, you've got up for the past two days. And that's a way of getting you to think about how much time you're spending there and to stop you from just wasting time there unnecessarily. Both iOS and Android now tell you how much time you're spending on your phone each week and what exactly you're spending your time on. So all of these things, you could if you were being facetious, you could uh, dump them in a bucket called mindfulness. But to be serious, I mean, it's just a way of helping you be aware of what it is you're doing with this amazing device that you have in your hand.
0: Because it's just so easy to get sucked in and, and so forth. So just making you slow down a bit more generally, sort of slow computing. Now, doesn't this conflict with the platform's desire to make their product as engaging as possible, to keep you locked inside their app and sharing stuff? And doesn't this mean they'll make less money if they take this sort of approach
1: well yes and no there's two ways to think about it because the different platforms have different ways of keeping you engaged right so whatsapp for instance is a messaging app so you the engagement comes from your friends if you have lots of friends who send lots of messages you're engaged anyway you don't need necessarily to get all of these forwards and in some countries the forwards are out of control it's just constant Facebook's slightly different because there the engagement is slightly more artificial. It's one of the reasons we had a lot of misinformation. It's one of the reasons you have a lot of sensationalist content on Facebook because publishers, uh, content providers, Facebook itself, they all know that the way to get people to click on stuff is to be sensationalist. But to answer the question more directly about business models... Yes and no again. I mean, maybe Facebook takes a s- small hit from people spending less time clicking on stuff or even just scrolling through the newsfeed. On the other hand, the reputational damage that these companies can suffer is so tremendous, as we've seen over the past few years,
0: that it's actually a pretty good idea in terms of the bottom line. Now, isn't there also a danger that you might have a form of slow social that's actually too slow. And if you go too far in this direction, you might put people off. And there's quite a lot of evidence that people are having doubts about, you know, they're concerned about how much time they're spending on social now. So might you not actually encourage them to sort of walk out of the door even faster than they're walking now? How do you know how slow is enough?
1: I think it's a matter of sort of um, dipping a toe before you dip a foot. So to go back to the WhatsApp example, initially when they instituted this, In India, you were allowed to only forward to five people, but everywhere else, you were allowed to forward to, the limit was 20. And then a few months later, they just made the five universal or rather global. So I think they are also feeling their way through it, making sure they're not hurting themselves too much. And clearly in WhatsApp's case, they found that the five thing wasn't that harmful for their business.
0: Now, at the beginning of March, Mark Zuckerberg announced that Facebook is going to take what he calls a more privacy-friendly approach in the future. It's going to integrate its three main platforms to provide a secure payment system and messaging platform. How does that relate to the idea of slow social, if at all? I think it's a sort of sideways look at the very
1: same thing. In effect, what Mark Zuckerberg is admitting by this massive change is that the newsfeed is basically over. It'll linger for a long time. It'll continue making truckloads of money for a very long time. However, it's fundamentally a business model that is going to have an end.
0: Great. Thanks very much. Thanks, Tom. And finally, we travel to China to look at one vision of the future of education. Anne McElvoy, our Head of Audio, visited the WLSA Fudan Academy in Shanghai and spoke to its president, Tony Little, who is the former headmaster of Eton College. He's trying to develop more globally-minded students by mixing Eastern and Western approaches to teaching.
5: We know you in the education world in Britain as a former head of Eton College, perhaps the most famous of the great British private schools. Here you are... Be fair to say a less grand setting of a school here in Shanghai. Tell us a bit about why it's different from, say, a private school, which there are some British ones who set up chains in China. I mean, what marks this out as different?
2: Well, I think it's dramatically different in a number of ways. For a start, in China, education is pretty much bifurcated between a pretty good state system and for-profit schools. Well, this new project is not for-profit. That in itself makes it stand out. The second thing is that it has an aspiration to be entirely needs-blind in the future, that is to have enough wherewithal to be able to pay scholarship money to any deserving student from anywhere around China, and indeed to support them at university wherever they wish to go, in the West, or indeed at, at home. So that is a second defining element. And a third issue, which really attracted me, nothing to do with me, I have to say, but the the school has been created in completely the reverse way to other international schools in China.
5: And it feels very much like an East-West cooperation. What's the philosophy of the school?
2: A great attraction of this school is the curriculum that has been developed, and it started before I became involved. And this curriculum really does seek to bring together the best from a Chinese and the best from a Western curriculum. It's a school for Chinese students in China. So it's not an international school, and I have to say many international schools to me come across as rather bland. This school has a really strong Chinese identity, but it also has a global impact programme, which all the students take, which enables them to have a much better sense of the world into which they are moving, more, become more globally sensitive, globally aware
5: characterise the two elements, if you could, that you've put together from the Chinese education system and what you've brought to it as someone who comes from that high end of the very established English private education system.
2: The school is interesting in having pretty much half its teachers, Chinese, and the other half drawn from the Western world. And this has just fallen out through the process of recruitment. But it is an extraordinary fact that taking an open policy of recruitment, that as things stand, every maths and science teacher is Chinese and every humanities teacher is Western because they were the best people for the jobs. And it's worth delving into that because what these Chinese maths and science teachers bring is extraordinary subject knowledge, focus and academic rigour. And they do have a system that really seems to work. But the whole notion of being able to debate, discuss, to criticise, to analyse is largely alien from that mindset, and that's where the better Western teachers are able to bring another dimension. One of the things you notice in this school when you go round, and you go into one of the homegrown devised courses, there are five courses that we run in this Global Impact programme, one of them is called Colloquy, and it is very striking to hear 15, 16-year-old Chinese students who have no tradition or expectation or requirement to speak up, question or debate actively getting involved in English in a whole range of subject matter.
1: Stay with me. Okay, now we have four different perspectives about feminism in China. But I'm having a hard time understanding the difference about feminism in China versus feminism in. Feminism movement,
5: movement in China, uh, but when I search the laws, there's many laws that regulate that women have to gain their rights. Yes. Um, for the women rights, we include the politics, the economics, the culture. Feminism that uh, the foreign country have that, but China don't. Like what? Like. Race discrimination.
2: I'm not aware of a course like this existing in any other elite Chinese school. So it's it's very much a homegrown thing. And like anything in this fledgling school, it's a work in progress. There's plenty more that can be done. But what uh, attracts me about it is that this is a really good opportunity for students to analyse and dissect a foreign society, in this case American society, which they're fascinated in anyway, and to be able to, as it were, like the watchmaker take all the pieces apart and then put them back together again and see both the flaws and the great strengths inherent in a political system. And in doing so, of course they're developing the skills they could apply to any society.
5: And have you propelled any of those children that you spoke about to the very top of the American system? Do we have any, anyone who's come from a poor place and gone to Harvard, for instance?
2: Oh, Yale, Stanford, in the last couple of years, are hopeful of Harvard for the first time this year. A young man called Tesla,
5: we're going to meet Tesla, aren't we? So I named myself after the scientist Nikola
0: Tesla. I would say my areas of interest is mostly math, mathematics. It all began with a test. And then my head teacher came to me and said, Oh, Tesla, here's a project about going abroad. So would you like to have take a look at it? So before, I never considered the road of going abroad. But then my parents looked at it and said, Oh, Tesla! Well, don't you give it just a try?
5: So my name is Yi Han Cheng, and you can call me Olive. And I'm from Yangzhou in Jiangsu Province, very near Shanghai. And uh, I came to Shanghai more than two years ago for education in also Fudan Academy. I'm very glad to come here because like also Fudan gave me a great opportunity to explore more about my interests. Just tell us what you brought from Eton specifically. With you, of course, the mind's eye for a lot of people, Eton, very grand place, produced an awful lot of prime ministers, leaders, quite posh, moneyed within the English system, famous wearing tails and frocks sort of frock coats on uh, formal occasions. You haven't introduced that here. There seem to be more in, in sneakers, as far as I can see, and, and jeans. But what have you brought with you from your old world?
2: Well, Eton isn't just a posh place, though it is and has a great history and 600 years and all the rest of it. But what is particularly distinctive about the philosophy of education at, at Eton really is twofold. One is a commitment to an all-round education through boarding and the other is having an holistic programme, a curriculum that does more than just the academic. Now, if you come to a even a top-end, very expensive Chinese school, results-driven, obsessed by outcome, you are highly likely to find that you are paying for a classroom experience. Just a better or a more focused classroom experience. What happens here, even in our rented shed of a building that we're currently in, where we're sitting right now, is that there is a co-curricular programme. So the students don't disappear at four o'clock. They'll be into a whole range of clubs and activities and increasingly sporting events So in the belief that they will benefit from this rounded approach. Take some educating of parents, I have to say. This is not a normal thing in China. And in the same way, in terms of the curriculum, by developing a mandatory programme which is not assessed in the usual way by which I mean the Global Impact Programme, and all these different courses we run that is creating a much bigger perception of what education is. And that's very much in the Eaton tradition. It, it looks different, you know, flavours different, but underneath it's basically the same approach.
0: That's all for this edition of The World Ahead. And if you enjoy our journalism, why not consider taking out a subscription to The Economist? Just go to economist.com slash to get 12 issues for $12 or £12. I'm Tom Standage.
5: In London, this is The Economist.